I don't know if we'll need actors in the future. Like I could see you having like jet, like AI generated actors where it's a, a team of people. I think you see this and, you know, I think it's happening, you know, more and more in like Asia where there's some of these like AI generated like stars and celebrities. And, and they actually like, it's still important to tie the story in and you still have to be really good to build that character. But now it wouldn't be limited to people that look a certain way on screen and have the right connections. Like you could have everybody's like building actors that are unique and have a story that you connect to and deliver things in a certain way. And like, you'll just kind of like license out these characters. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akhund, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury. Also, I'm an active investor and I've invested in more than 300 companies. I'm Raj Suri. I'm co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And Dave Rogan-Moser, who's the CEO and co-founder of Jasper. Dave, you want to do a very short intro on like what Jasper does? Yeah. Jasper is a company we started about two years ago. We help marketing teams write high quality, great content and do it in about half the time with the help of AI. So been riding this generative AI wave and being one of the first companies to help really productize that and take it to market to end users. Just curious, like what got you excited about this field and what will get you motivated to do what you do? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of just perfect time, perfect place, perfect team. It was about two and a half years ago, we were spinning down our company Proof that Ahmad graciously invested in back before Mm -hmm. we really knew what it was five years ago. Liked the team a lot, but it laid off some people just because we were trying to get profitable. We're kind of saying, hey, we don't really want to keep pursuing this, you know, vision. We were, it was a marketing tool that helped increase conversion rates on websites. And we were trying to get into the personalization space. And for a variety of reasons, we decided this wasn't going to work out. And then I'd seen GPT-3. I'd seen all the like Twitter threads and just fun old demos and thought, oh, that would be really great for writing marketing content. I was teaching this course on how to do Facebook ads for B2B SaaS companies. And one of the lessons, I think it was like week three, was how to write a great ad and how to write great ad copy. And I'd been doing Facebook ads for years and years. And, you know, I taught this framework of how I wrote our ads. And it was always challenging to get the people in this course. There's maybe like 12 other founders in there or CMOs. And it was always challenging to get them to really follow my formula and and do it as well as me. My first thought was, oh, I could just build a little tool that could like help them write their ads for this course. And like, maybe it's more than that someday, but like at the very least, like that would be pretty cool. And I could like sell more courses. And so we just built this really quick MVP to solve that problem. And it was super sketchy. You know, you couldn't do hardly anything. I mean, there's no settings. You couldn't even cancel. There wasn't a cancellation button, which was like our Mm -hmm. way to minimize churn and keep it at zero. (laughs) There's nowhere to go. And yeah, launched it. And, you know, I did some like calls with some of our coaching clients, like as it was kind of just an MVP, they couldn't even like use it. It was just a screen share. And people were just like cussing on the phone and just saying like, oh my gosh, how do I get this today? And for like all the years I'd ever been in business with my co-founders, the previous seven years, like I'd never gotten that reaction. And so I knew pretty quickly, like this is different than anything I've ever done and kind of quickly learned that this had the potential to be a really great company. Dave, I'm an investor in like more than 300 companies now and your story, both pulling off a pivot and also your kind of growth shots after you did it. I'm not going to give away any stats. I don't know what's public, but it was just astronomical. It was like a crazy story to see. I remember every every month you'd send your investor update and I'd be like, you think it's going to happen next month? Too? And you'd be like, do you remember I that? Right this time? Oh, I, would look, I, I just dreaded sending those monthly investor updates. They, 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 well, they frequently got less, you know, they weren't monthly because it was just yeah. like nothing is even happening here. And and then I just think it got to the point, there was probably like a six month window between like the last proof one, I kind of go dark for six months, we build Jasper, it's the funniest like follow up one, it's like, hey, we're still alive. And it shows this like flat chart for three years, and then just this like, massive uptick on the right. So 
that explosive growth is like very hard to come by. Like Roger's a co-founder of Lyft, so maybe he's seen it before. Mm-hmm. But do you think it was something about the AI and the fact that it was like being utilized that like got people really excited about sharing it with people? Or was it just that it was solving this pain point that was like really painful to people? Yeah, it was just solving a real pain point in a dramatically better and magical way. And so mm. it worked so well in a way that was like so surprising that like everyone just told everyone about it. Seeing such rapid growth, was there like a moment where like you flicked a switch, you just saw like an explosion of usage? Was there like that, you know, we've all been there as part of a um, startup that we've worked at, or was it just kind of like building over, um, over several months? I mean, it was very quick. We had, we had this goal to reach $50,000 MRR by like midsummer. It's like six months in, we would reach like $50,000 MRR. And I think we reached it two weeks in. And mm. then, you know, we're like, wow, this is really great. And like, oh man, let's try to reach 200K, you know, by then. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we like hit 200K MRR. And then we did this webinar about three months in, like at the end of March. We were just on one plan. So it's like a $29 a month plan. Everybody was on this $29 a month plan. There was really no expansion or anything, which hadn't built any of that in. And so we built out this pro plan and hosted this webinar. And I've done a bunch of webinars in the past over the years, like probably over 100. And usually we'd have 20 people show up or you have 60 people or three people. And this one, we had like 2,500 registrants. And then the room was totally full with like 1,000 people. And I pitched this pro plan. And I think we added $400,000 of MRR in like three days. Mm-hmm. What was the cost of the pro plan? It was like $109 a month. I think. And so I had like all mm-hmm. this crazy expansion and just like people were going nuts. And that was a pretty magical moment when it was just like, holy cow, this thing is like left the station and it's working and yep. just felt really good after I feel like seven or eight years of grinding away to finally hit something that you feel like you were working towards the whole time. You mentioned, I think, earlier at some point that you're not an AI researcher, but you like to understand how these different technologies can be applied to different use cases. Where do you think this technology is going to go in terms of like, what use cases do you think are going to become more and more prevalent that maybe people aren't even thinking about today? I think what you're doing now is kind of obvious. This is obviously the way of the future, but what use cases do you think are not obvious? Yeah, I think obviously you see a lot of the generation of text and images, and then you'll see, you know, video become better and better, and it'll kind of continue, you know, to generate great stuff. What large language models are really great at is just understanding. And so, you know, it's kind of like what we've always wanted Siri to do or Alexa. And like, I can just like talk to it in like regular language and get it to do stuff. And I think that's the big like next leap is that these models will start being able to do more things for us outside of just generate text and images. You know, you could connect multiple apps together. You could say, you know, hey, I'll go start my car. It could actually go and do that. You could say, hey, you know, write me 10 Facebook ads and like upload them to Facebook and it'll be able to do that. And so I just think like we're going to get to this place where they're just doing more things in the digital world. I mean, at some point it'd be the physical world too that aren't confined to like a very like narrow use case or a very narrow tool and that actually like connect different tools together. It'll be across the different tools. So I still think like we're super early and people are just kind of learning like what to do with it. I think most of the conversations are still more on the research side and there's kind of just now coming online a new wave of entrepreneurs that are saying, hey, how do we build really great products and tools with this? And that's going to be incredible. Your use case is very fault resistant. It's like copy for marketing, which doesn't matter if it's a little incorrect and you have a human normally like look at it afterwards. I worry that the you know, a lot of other use cases are not so tolerant. Actually, the one that you just said, like switch on my car is not so bad, but like people are like, oh, why don't we apply this to like doctors, right? That's the kind of thing where like, if you make a mistake, someone could die. <laughs> so uh, yeah. do you think we'll get to a position where like we can apply this to use cases that aren't so fault tolerant or is it mostly focused on like these kind of fault tolerant use cases? 
I think so. Humans are humans, even doctors and all that. So even there's some level of, okay, like we're comfortable with some risk here and doctors make mistakes and there's liability insurance. It's a little bit worse if it's a computer makes a mistake and, and that's what you die of as opposed to a PhD doctor but or an MD. But yeah, I think like the hallucination is a big problem and that these large language models output things that aren't true and they do it so authoritatively and convincingly and you could read a whole paper and it kind of lulls you to sleep because everything you read is true and then it kind of slips in, you know, one or two things that aren't true, but they look pretty true. And so I've seen research and we've even experimented some things that decrease hallucinations and definitely make them more accurate. I think at some point we might need to rethink kind of how we train the models and actually the process of even getting to where we are now in order to like really solve that. But I think there's likely going to be, you know, human in the loop for the really high risk use cases for a long, long time. I think it's solvable. Yeah. And one thing you said, talked about was like digital to physical interfaces. Those are going to become more lucrative to develop now that you have a really powerful digital intelligence that could drive physical use cases. Do you see a lot more investment going into that as well? I mean, this is something that I work with a lot in Presto is digital to physical, thinking about how digital can impact physical. I have not seen it that much, and that's somewhat surprising to me. There's definitely a lack of that. I assume that you've seen this, if that's kind of what you're focusing on. It's like the physical world is like so hard to change and it's not really keeping up with technology. And it's like, you know, my computer's like wholly different every single day and everything is like coming alive. And it's like, you know, I go down and my toaster's the same and my microwave's the same. You know, everything's like normal life outside of your computer. So yeah, so I'm really excited, but I have not seen a lot of investment kind of flowing in or like even a lot of really cool companies coming out that make that leap using generative AI to go impact physical products. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. There's a lot of companies and investment out of MIT in, in particular, you know, around these types of problems. But you're right that it's not enough. There's disproportionate. I mean, that's one of the downsides of like the startup economy is that like startups like to work on things that are cheap. And working in the physical world is not cheap. It's very expensive to invest in the physical world and many companies fail. But at some point that becomes the bottleneck and you have to undo that bottleneck it was a hardware innovation with the smartphone that got us to where we were, right? And being able to deliver software to everyone's pockets. So, I mean, VCs keep getting burned when they touch the physical world, right? Yeah, is it just not lucrative enough to really put money there? It's hard to pull it off. I mean, if you look at the top tech companies, you know, both Amazon and Apple are very heavy in the physical world. So it's definitely lucrative yeah. if you can pull it off. It's like the VCs can't do it, but the big companies can, right? Like it takes an Apple to figure it out for the smartphones. It took an Amazon to figure it out for cloud, right? And the VCs can't stomach it. There's just too much investment. You get a magic leap type company, right? Yeah. Where, you know, it's very difficult for them to sustain that type of loss over many, many years. And they need to keep generating hype. It's not easy. Is the way for startups to do it more to keep bringing down the cost of interacting with the physical world? And do you see like breakthroughs happening there? I mean, I think one of the interesting things in AI is like maybe, yeah, a lot of like the innovations that I've invested in and are interesting are in robotics. So does AI reduce the cost of robotics? Because a lot of robotics, like you're doing that kind of very point-based machine learning, or I guess we all call AI now, solutions. Whereas like maybe with generative AI, you could have like a generic AI layer that you kind of just train to like move the robot a little bit and you don't have to build that understanding from scratch which maybe helps. Yeah, I've seen talk and research just around like the ability to do all these simulations mm -hmm. virtually now. You know, you used to have to actually build out all the prototypes and test it all. And now you can do, you know, hundreds of thousands of simulations and iterations before you even go to the physical world and can really prove out a lot of concepts there, which would certainly lower the cost in a big way. One thing I've wondered about is whether it's GPT or one of the other kind of APIs, like if the LLM space in general is like very accessible, so you can build a startup on it very easily. Does that mean that you don't really have a moat? Like, you know, there'll be like a thousand Jaspers or a thousand other applications and, and it'll be very hard to build like a very kind of sustainable large company as a application layer. Or do you think that's not the case? I think there's something there. I wouldn't be spending my life building on that. But, you know, there's certainly like some risk of that. And it's funny, you know, I talked to, we kind of have one foot 
in the AI research world and like talked to a lot of folks there all the time. And then I've kind of got one foot. Yeah, I mean, our, our customers don't care about that. They're just trying to solve this problem. And so I've always got to simplify and spend a lot of time just with customers and, you know, people that aren't AI experts. And the AI experts always think that the model is a commodity. And they're like, yeah, this is commodity. There's nothing here. It's going to be, you know, all go to zero here very soon. And you're going to see, you know, like they all talk like that. And they're like, the hard part is the product and distribution and go to market and the UI. Like the, that's where the value is. And then I talked to the other people that aren't their experts and, and they are all like, oh yeah, the products, that's easy. That's a commodity. The value is in the model and the data <laughs> yeah. and all yeah. of that. And, and, and these are really smart people on both sides. And so I think it, you end up thinking the thing that you're not as good at or not an expert in is where all the value is. But it's really funny because both feel that very dogmatically. I think that there's lots of moats. It's very rare for a B2B software company to have really strong moats. Yeah. It doesn't have the network effects like a Facebook or Lyft or things like that. And so obviously like we've got to innovate. We've got to to build differentiation and moats where we can find them. But I don't think there's anything that we're gonna do that is going to be long-term defensible. And I could just kind of rest on my laurels and like not keep executing. You see that, and you know, you said there might be a thousand Jaspers. Like, there's probably a thousand Jaspers that launched today <laughs> that we've got to go beat. And now, now, fortunately, like again, we're really good at a lot of this, and it's more to a company than just kind of building a UI. We've got great distribution. We've got a great community. We've got really great insights from talking to customers and obsessing over customers every single day, where some people are not doing that. And so, I think there's like a lot to building a company. That is hard to do, and various people will do that to different degrees. But I don't think that the models are also like these defensible places that once you build a large language model, it can just last for a long time. You're seeing them come out so quickly and copy each other. And you're yeah. just seeing that the innovation moves so fast. It's like I think what we talk about mm -hmm. a lot is find defensibility where we can. But more than that, we're trying to build a team and an engine to continue to innovate regularly so that we can always have speed to market and speed to innovation there and keep that lead. Yeah, you know, I think the dirty secret amongst SaaS companies, especially amongst technical founders, that we don't really talk about that much because we get enamored with the technology is that like a lot of the moat ends up being like brand or like your customer network or just like your referenceability among customers I and mean, word of mouth. And people don't talk about that, especially amongst technical folks. It's kind of anathema in some ways. But, you know, I talked to a senior person at a very large SaaS company recently, and I asked them what their moat was, because it was like a very simple product. It was literally like a type of CRM type product. And they're like, our moat is we get our customers together once a month with new prospects, and people love to come to these dinners or events. And that's what gets us into more customers. And it's a simple thing, you know, it's a simple execution thing that had nothing to do with the technology. That was pretty instructive as well. This is like billions of dollars in revenue for a company. That's amazing. Yeah, people don't like to talk about that. And, and again, like when I think about like my week, most of the really hard things that I'm doing are around building a team, building an organization, like building great partnerships. You know, it's like all these things that are not only product related endeavors. Like these are really hard. They're really stretching me. And like I'm gifted in those things and they're still incredibly hard. And so it's like, I think with any company or founding team, like there's gonna be things that are really, really hard to do that are necessary for building a great company. And you've kind of got to do it all, but you certainly have to nail the product and build differentiation where you can. I think one thing that's good about Jasper and makes it more sustainable is this kind of business use case. I think it's much harder if you're building a consumer company where I do struggle with most of the generative AI consumer companies that feel like a little fatty yep. and it's hard to see how, like they charge these, like some of these profile pick ones were like charging like these insane values, which I get, like it's kind of fun to do it, but like it just doesn't seem like a very sustainable business on the consumer side. I know, you'd have to really build a machine that can just keep cranking out winners all the time and yeah. you know get it blows up and you get the number one in the app store and you make a bunch of money and then before you know it all the apps do what you do 24 hours later and you know you've got to kind of keep doing that we definitely love selling to businesses we have like a lot of consumers and like prosumers and you know single seat users that use jasper and that's definitely like a harder place to compete 
and a harder group of people to continually please over and over when the switching costs are lower and they don't mind kind of going somewhere else. But we do see we get into teams and we get into you know larger companies and there's a lot less of the noise and a lot more of just you building value for your customers. And it's just an easier segment, I think, to go and penetrate. What's the longest form content or like most complex type of content you guys help enable today? Our number one use case is blog posts. And there's probably a lot of different examples of different kinds of blog posts and people call, you know, white papers, blog posts, things like that. But, you know, I mean, several thousand words, maybe four to six thousand words would be kind of the high end window of, of the kind of content people are creating. People do use Jasper to write books and probably two weeks after we launched Jasper, we had no like long form stuff. We had like this like Facebook ad tool. Some guy wrote a whole book in a weekend kind of using this Facebook ad tool. And he kind of figured out how to hack it and get it to like say what he wanted. And it must have been a, just an absolutely miserable experience <laughs> kind of using this like one sentence at a time generator and wrote this entire book. And that really blew my mind. And we quickly saw that people were hacking our product to write really long form stuff and finding good results with it. And so we kind of made this shift from more of the short form ad copy, landing page copy type product to really long form product. And yeah, people seem to really like that. I mean, this question might seem a little basic to you, but I don't think people actually understand it. Like, what does it take to go from, I can go to ChatGPT and say, write me a blog post about X versus I can go to Jasper and say, write me a blog post about X. What makes it different to go to Jasper and do it versus like ChatGPT directly? Yeah, so when we started out, they had an, an API and no one yeah. was like really building on it. And I even remember I was in this Slack group kind of early days with like everybody else that had access to GPT-3 and everyone was doing very trivial things with it. And I'm sitting there thinking, guys, we're sitting on a gold mine here. Like this is incredibly powerful and everyone is using it to like translate the Declaration of Independence into Elvish and just like these like <laughs> weird, like, like trivial things and all thought that was super cool. And they're all complaining about latency and, you know, all these things. I was just like, forget all that. Businesses want this and they're willing to work to the kinks to go and do that. So like early days, it was a lot of like prompt engineering and it was just figuring out how do you prompt this, you know, behind the scenes? How do you give it like really high quality examples? And like a lot of the work was there, you know, plus there's like different kind of settings and tweaking that you can do to the API to improve the results, you know, but it was like, I would say straightforward, not necessarily easy. You had to have like really like strong knowledge of the use case in order to get better and better results. But it was that as like the models have gotten better, the prompting has like diminished the value of like the prompting itself has diminished because they're just so much better out of the box and they might not need examples to really do well. And so like we're kind of seeing, I think, that layer diminish. But what you do have opportunity to do is fine tune is to take, you know, as we have more and more data, we've just seen more and more great examples of great blog posts, of ad copy that people like, of paragraphs that are high quality. And at least for us, like outputs that our users prefer and so now we've been able to take that and we use a variety of different models. OpenAI is a great partner, certainly use like a ton of their stuff and like the majority of our outputs kind of come from them. But then we also have, you know, other partners and other models that we're tweaking that we're able to go and fine tune these models like for Jasper specific use cases. I think this is where there's a lot of value for companies to build is OpenAI and ChatGPT is gonna be inherently more generalized. And it's going to work for a broad number of use cases, for a broad number of people doing all sorts of stuff. But like people come to Jasper for like a job to do. And like Jasper is where people go to work. And so going back to the question about ChatGPT, I mean, Jasper has Jasper chat. So if you kind of wanted to use a chat-like interface to do that, you can certainly do the same things in Jasper as you could in ChatGPT, where we would add different tools around blog post creation. So we also have templates that make it easier and more structured to go and create blog post headlines and outlines and things like that. We've got workflow tools where you could generate each step of the blog post kind of piece by piece and, you know, enter a topic and then it creates an outline and then it creates paragraphs for each outline and then it cleans them up and, oh, you can click a button and it'll, it'll create art and images for each one of the blog posts, oh, like sections cool. in there. And so like, I think there's a lot of value in like, what is the job to be done of the user and how do we just work backwards from there to pull together like a variety of tools 
in a very like opinionated way around that use case. I think we found that when many users have more structure, they do better. When you're kind of, it's very unstructured and they look at it, it's an unfamiliar interface, you know, they don't really know kind of how to get from point A to point B, but many users you know, do like that structure. And so we build tooling that helps you do that faster. Do you think personalization is important? Like I assume you fine tune on like a generic thing, right? You can't say like, say things in the voice of Ahmad very easily. I mean, I guess I have enough tweets out there that maybe people can, but in general, it's like personalizing it is still pretty tricky, right? Yeah, it is tricky. We're making some really great progress there. I think as an industry and as Jasper, you know, it still doesn't really make sense to fine tune a model per customer in the back end of Jasper. I mean, it's not like there's just like one model. You mean like it technically doesn't make sense or? Yes, it technically doesn't make sense. Yeah. Cost, time, all of that. Like we could do it and for a super big contract, we'd be like, all right, we're going to go fine tune the whole app and every model for that use case there. But like how much would it cost? It wouldn't cost that much in compute and training. It would be more collecting all of the data, our team kind of synthesizing that, cleaning that, making sure we have enough of it, making sure we have the right quality of data, like from a customer. Yeah, we'd go grab all your tweets, we'd go grab, you know, whatever we kind of could, but like, there's a good chance, like you don't actually have the right data to go and like fine tune off of for like some use cases. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like operationally and just like the complexity of now kind of having 90 separate models for this one account. That would make it like very complex to like the operationalize in the back end there. But I think we'll get there. And what we are doing more, we just launched Jasper Brand Voice and we're like baiting that with some different companies where you can upload information about your company, about your style, about your tone, about your brand voice, about your product descriptions and all of that. And then as you're writing, we can go retrieve that. And again, it's not a fine-tuned model, but it is retrieving the right information at the right time about your company that does provide a very unique experience and it functionally feels like very personalized to you and it is personalized to you, but it's, I think it's in a different way than like most people think that it would happen where they would think it would come from like custom models. We were saying earlier about people creating like books from your system. It was pretty fascinating. I mean, do you think like three to five years from now, like basically every newspaper, every book is made in a very different way where the news is made with just a couple prompts. Here's some updates, or maybe it comes from like, you know, a Reuters feed or something like that. And it gets adapted to the New York Times by AI. And then a New York Times editor just reviews it and it goes into goes into the paper. I mean, do you think that's the way like books and all like articles are, will be will be published in the not too distant future? I don't even think it's years out. I think it's probably way closer than that. And I think maybe the natural question is like, well, what happens to creativity if like if kind of that's how writing happens or books happen. What we have found with our customers is that the like spectrum of creativity doesn't go away. And it's not like, oh, everyone gets smushed into if you use Jasper, like, you know, you're all kind of the same amount of creative and all that. But like our power users are like coming up with really remarkable, clever, creative ideas and ways to use this and ways to tie in great stories with image generation through Jasper art and like all these things. And then like less creative people like come up with just far worse stuff. And so I don't think people will be sitting around looking at blank pages, typing out every sentence from scratch. I don't think it'll take years and years to write a book. I think you could write a great book very quickly, but you'd still have to understand like people, understand storytelling, understand how to combine these tools in order to like create a really compelling experience for the reader, for the user. And the bar will be raised, right? Like there'll be more books that kind of pass the bar, you know, but I still think you're going to see like exceptional books, exceptional movies, exceptional media sites that have a unique insight into a group of people and figure out how to apply this in a really unique way. Like, I don't think that's going away at all, but I do think a lot of this like just write. I think people will move from writers to editors in a very big way. I actually think that most of the current stage of AI doesn't solve the creativity part, it actually removes the drudgery part. Yep. Yep. I don't know if you know this, Raj, but Fatma used to write for the next web. And, you know, she mm. had to write like five articles a day. So, like, it was <laughs> like a machine. So, there was very little actual like creativity. It was like much more like assembling facts together as quickly as possible. 
And actually, I think it will enable people in those kind of roles to actually be creative because if you can like have the facts assembled really quickly, then you actually spend most of your time on the creativity side rather than like just writing down the facts and assembling everything. And it can eliminate like language barriers, you know, like uh, there's yeah, people true. in the US coming from like all these different countries. My wife, for example, is native Chinese and she's creative, but she can't write well in English as well as us. So, you know, she can write that in Chinese and can get great translation to English or good interpretation due to that. Yeah, there's just me so many more people that can participate in the creative process in a variety of mediums. One of our like maybe most interesting customers, his name is Jim. He, you know, is like an academic and copywriter and he outside of a grocery store, it was about five years ago, he got attacked and suffered a really traumatic head injury. Mm. And that injury turned into aphasia where he had a really hard time recalling words and communicating. And he went from this very smart guy that could communicate his thoughts and write and all these things to a very smart guy that now could not do that and couldn't write the things he was writing before. And so when AI came onto the scene, he was like an early adopter of it. And for him, it really unlocked his mind and his ability to communicate again in a very big way. And he's become probably like our most creative user. He creates really mm -hmm. amazing things that always blow our minds. He's very creative with his prompting. He'd actually applied to design school. He was not a designer, but he applied to design school as their first AI designer, which again, sounds kind of crazy. You'd think that like, oh, like, design schools are going to hate this. Like this school's leaning into it. And they're like, hey, this is just like a new medium. Mm -hmm. And he's like wonderfully creative. And so I think, yes, like, are we more or less creative as a culture with this? It's like, I would argue more because now you've got people like him that could never even participate in that process that are pushing the bounds forward and like creating really unique things out there. So I think you're going to see just a ton of that where people that could have been adding and creative and creating a lot of value there, like just couldn't. And now they can. And that's really powerful. Yeah. I felt a little bit that LLMs are the most interesting thing and the generative kind of images and even the video things are like a little bit more, I don't know, like they're cool, but I don't, I, I find it hard to come up with like actual good applications for them that are not just like, kind of like, oh, this was cool. And I feel like the LLMs maybe have like a ability to apply to a lot of use cases that it's very broad. Like it's just basically mm. talking to something and getting knowledge. Like, do you agree with that? Or do you think there is actually like, kind of the art or maybe video side of it could actually have like these kind of broad applications? I think they will have very broad applications. They're maybe a little bit behind. And I think with images, what they have that makes them so viral and powerful is that you can generate something, you instantly see it, and it's like, wow, that just came out of a sentence. And when people generate a paragraph, it's like kind of hard, like you gotta sit down and like read it, to understand it was this good, is this just junk, is it just nothing? And so it's like an instant wow factor with images. And so I think that like makes me go viral. I think the challenge is editing them, making them actually exactly what you want. Where if I generate a paragraph, it's not quite what I want. I can just go delete a few words, copy mm. and paste this thing, the other rest. But like, how do you like fix this image is something I like, but it's got seven fingers. You have to go into Photoshop and like be an expert there. So it's like, it's hard to like get stuff into the final state that you want it in with images, but like, that's just a short term bug. And I think it very quickly, you know, I mean, I don't know, just kind of look around anywhere, any book cover, any images for ad copy, anything you post on social media, any billboard, like all of these things will just be created at least first pass by generative models. I think it'll be equally big. I don't know what kind of like the total addressable market is for one versus the <laughs> other and like which one has like more application. But I think we're going to be very quickly seeing real practical use cases with the image and video side. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the applications for images and video seem tremendous to me. I mean, marketing via video could be really much cheaper to do. Right now it's expensive. That's why we don't see a lot of it. But when it's cheaper, it's going to become a lot more common. And of course, there's a huge creator industry, right? And TikTok and these types of things, people creating video. I mean, that's becoming a massive industry. Uh, that's becoming people's careers. That's going to become um, largely AI driven, I think, going forward. So yeah, I'm very excited about images and videos, even TV. I mean, like TV and movies to some degree, animation, that whole industry is going to be AI powered for sure. Of course, there's going to be still a lot of humans there, as you know, but 
I'm very excited for that evolution. Have you guys seen the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once? Oh yeah, great movie. Perhaps like the most creative movie in a while and visually very interesting. I haven't seen it. Can you describe what's special about it? I've only seen like half of it. It's just like very unique and creative. It's like not like any movie that you'd kind of like normally see pop up. Yeah, hard to describe. You got to see it. Oh, really? It's just kind of hard to describe. I don't know. It's just kind of like a visual like smorgasbord of storytelling and visual effects. And I was talking with the CEO of Runway ML, which is like a AI, generative AI, like video editing platform. And he said he was like looking at, I think maybe the credits of the movie. And it was like a seven person visual team. And he's like, that's really strange. Like that should be a, a massive <laughs> team. Like, I wonder like what they did like how did they pull this off are they using contractors that they just been put up there or whatever so he like got a hold of them he's like hey like how'd you create this insane movie with just such a small team and, and actually they said oh we used runway for a lot of this and mm. i think that's what you're gonna see like that team would have before had to go get way more funding and get the powers that be sign off on the movie and all that stuff to create this like really creative film and now we get to see it because a few people wanted to make it and it turns out to be like really great so i'm really excited about that that's funny that you didn't even know his own software was used for it oh i know and i was like dude that should just be your like that's your headline <laughs> yeah, that's on your it. websites everything everywhere all at once all and at once really powerful this is somewhat unrelated but somewhat related is like do you think actors get like that whole industry of acting and do you think they get somewhat replaced by ai because i mean that's one it's hard to get a human in the loop in that and the technology is good enough that you should be able to I don't know if we'll need actors in the future. Like I could see you having like jet, like AI generated actors where it's a, a team of people. I think you see this and, you know, I think it's happening, you know, more and more in like Asia where there's some of these like AI generated like stars and celebrities. And, and they actually like, it's still important to tie the story in and you still have to be really good to build that character. But now it wouldn't be limited to people that look a certain way on screen and have the right connections. Like you could have everybody's like yeah. building actors that are unique and have a story that you connect to and deliver things in a certain way. And like, you'll just kind of like license out these characters. I mean, what if people really, really care about seeing like that specific actor and the bond with them? Like maybe it will just be that like a given actor can now do 10 X more movies. Yeah, so I think in the shorter term, obviously we've got our batch of actors now that are real people and they'll continue to have like pull. And yeah, I think they'll probably start licensing out their face and, you know, it's just way cheaper. You could either have Tom Hanks for you know, 20 million or you could have his likeness for like 800,000 and, you know, you just put it yeah. on the body double or something like that. Like, I, I think that'll happen in the short term. But yeah, I just don't know if you're going to need human actors, you know, in the future. But you still will need people that can create stories and create yeah. you know i guess the persona that is the actor you need directors you'll need writers you'll need editors for sure right you'll need to some degree designers but their job is going to be editing what the ai comes up with it's going to be a different job altogether but yeah i think actor is one of those things that could be you know significantly disrupted to Emma's point people are going to start bonding with the ai characters soon enough and then they won't care that much take like leonardo dicaprio like he knows something about his skill that like people can't replicate. They don't know, like, again, I'm sure he's like hyper intelligent and emotionally aware about like what he's doing. And again, I think there'll still be people like that. and There's still a value there, but like maybe in the future he can create and run seven different actors, you know, mm. taking that unique insight that he has. And they're going to be the seven best actors in the world because he knows something that we don't. And even if you had all the same tooling, you couldn't quite capture what he's doing there. The best actors participate really intensively in the creative process of building the character, right? And so they're they're not just like being a face on the screen. They're actually, you know, doing more than that. So yeah, someone like Leonardo DiCaprio probably is a good example of that, who's like very involved in the creative process. And there's probably a number of those folks out there. Whereas there's some people who are just faces on a screen. Those people will get disrupted. I think one interesting downside to this is I think there's a world where the stories that we like share as a culture, like we lose those and they get fragmented and everyone's watching their own unique movie, you know? And so you'll be able to just generate a movie that really fits your taste and your style and aligns with themes that you believe about the world and, you know, is super entertaining for you. 
but nobody else has watched that movie in the world and you can't talk about it. You can't be challenged. And you know, some of these ideas that you have, you can't, like, you, like, you lose that shared experience. To some extent that kind of happened with streaming already, right? Like yep. it used to be the case that everyone would watch this episode and everyone would talk about it the day after. Now it's just like the whole season's out on Netflix and like sometimes people talk about seasons as a whole but I do feel like the collective we're waiting for this episode we just watched it together and it was like a big thing and we could talk about it the next day and yeah you know what'd you think and obviously there's this kind of like entertainment factor but I think there's value in like a culture like having we all have saving private Ryan as a movie that you're like man it teaches us something that we value as a culture and we can kind of share that and we kind of like build something on that and like you know what if all of that goes away and like we're not reading the same books and they're all just again kind of maybe more and more like echo chamber there's like a risk to that maybe we end up not caring or maybe that is so powerful that we kind of see it start to like come back together instead of being fragmented because people actually prefer that yeah, I feel like we go back and forth to some degree because like as a society, we do crave that. We do crave a common connection and common media to some degree. And that's why things like Squid Games or like White Lotus or things like that, which do still emerge even in today's age of streaming, because people do want to have a shared experience and they talk about things with their friends and they mm. want other people to see the same thing that they've seen. It happens probably a lot more rarely now than it did before, but it still happens. And yep. You know, it's also the, some of the criticism behind social media. I mean, you can customize your Twitter feed to be only things that, that you look at, right, versus things that everyone's looking at. So there is that aspect that's already happening today, and that's always a risk. But I think the natural human urge to be part of a collective, that's counteracts that as well. So there's going to be this back and forth that continues. And the question is how far we'll get into this world where it's just like everything is personalized. Yep. And I think that kind of goes into like a bigger conversation just as like a culture like i think we need to be intentional about what we want these tools to do in our lives like i don't think there's any stopping it or putting the cat back in the bag but like we've got to decide do we care about artists rights and getting them rewarded for providing training data and again it's not clear I think it's kind of up to the culture to decide like what do we kind of want to do and what do we want to value there? Do we kind of value the like original artistic expression or do we kind of value high quality training data and great models and all of that? And so I don't know, I think there's like a lot of the conversations and decisions that need to happen here over the next five, 10 years of just like what role do we want this to play in our lives? And you know, there's no stopping it, but I think there is shaping it. Isn't there a problem that the government can kind of screw it up? If you take LLMs, if like someone's like, oh, actually, like if you ever use this training data, you got to pay X of your revenue for it. And like, I don't, it, it's hard to implement. I would feel like most ways that a government would end up implementing, it would probably be worse off than where we are right now. Yep. I mean, the pace at which this is moving is just so different than the pace at which governments evolve and move. And, you know, I'm not saying there's not like some place for like appropriate involvement there but i look more to just society and culture and just kind of us collectively deciding what do we think is important here and and how are we going to kind of reward behavior that's in line with how we want to be as a culture yeah i mean just looking at like recent history right with a few things so, so you know obviously the music industry and you know the emergence of napster and all these things like highly disrupted a very lucrative business for music producers right and there was no government to step in and, and try to take care of the, the artists there, right? They had to find a new business model. They were significantly disrupted. I think the same thing with Uber and Lyft, right? They're coming in and disrupting the taxi industry. There was no government to step in. You know, the taxi industry just got disrupted. That's quite likely to happen here, I think. There's going to be a set of people who are going to have to change the way they work because of this technology. And we talked about actors. You know, there's other, I don't know, copywriters or things like that whose job are going to change dramatically because of this. And it's just going to happen. I mean, that's just the history of technology. And yep. uh, you're right that society at some point is going to have to figure this out. But I don't really think society is going to have a vote. I think it's going to be a relatively small group of people who are going to try to figure things out for themselves. And they'll raise a fuss about it. But ultimately, they're going to have to change. No, I agree. And I think, like you said, this has always happened. I mean, we have far less farmers than we've ever had in previous points in history. And I think people kind of think, well, does that mean everyone's just going to be homeless? It's like, you don't see like all the old farmers like homeless now and poor, like they just like developed other skills. Right. Did you guys see this post by Mark Andreessen about why AI can't possibly take all your jobs? 
I saw it but didn't read it. Uh, his thesis, which I thought was really amusing, and I think it's probably true, is I don't know if you've seen this graph where it says like basically anything touched by technology and innovation has had massive deflation, whether it's like TVs yes. or consumer goods or whatever, and then anything touched by like government and to some extent like people and services costs, like health, education, and there's a third one that was always quoted, has got like massively inflated costs. And his point was that like, AI is going to have a difficulty going after those kind of regulatory captured industries. And basically the cost of everything else is going to go near zero and all the jobs will be, <laughs> will be in these kind of industries with regulatory capture and all the GDP, basically. Interesting. Do you think that's true, though? I mean, don't you think like healthcare and education, for example, seem like ripe for disruption by AI? You know, like first round of diagnosis can easily be done by an AI, probably better than a primary care doctor. They seem ripe for disruption, but you don't not think that regulatory capture will stop the disruption? Like, are we really going to let an AI without a doctor give people a diagnosis? Yeah, like, will that even be legal? Will insurance, get, you know, it's like, yeah, I could see that getting so tangled up where like it's pretty good and it could be really good for like on par for a long time before you're even able to like really use that. Yeah, maybe in other countries where there's just not enough doctors, like there's actually like a pretty big global doctor shortage <laughs> so maybe this will have more of an impact in places where like they're just lacking these basic services i can see governments getting a little bit upset about it but i'll tell you there's a lot of flexibility right now with like things like telehealth it's very easy to get like a doctor to like give you anything like a prescription or whatever you know and have insurance pay for it. like there's yes there's some certifications and stuff that are captured in the regulatory scheme but Getting AI maybe illegitimately at first, using AI illegitimately, but then it slowly starts to become more obvious that it's AI-driven. I mean, telehealth and AI are bosom buddies, right? They're going to be good friends. Everyone using telehealth, both the doctors on the other side, as well as the consumers themselves, will start just using AI naturally, I think, to help themselves out. I mean, right now, when you have a problem, you probably Google search, right? So you're like, oh, I have this symptom. What do I do? I mean, that's going to all go to an AI. And the governments can't stop that. People are going to go to a website and do that. The doctors are going to start using AI because they don't want to remember what they read in a textbook like 10 years ago. So they're, they're going to start using AI as well. So it's going to be hard to stop, I think. Yeah, when I looked at that chart, it also appeared like a lot of the prices that it inflated. I think it was like college tuition childcare, even like food and beverage. It's like stuff that's hard to globalize, you know, like you can't outsource your childcare to somebody overseas. And some of it's like almost like this like physical world stuff that, you know, I think it'd be interesting to figure out if we can kind of reduce the cost of labor and augment more of the physical world. I'm not saying we need like robot childcare yet. I've got three little boys and sometimes that would be nice, but uh, it's kind of like, these are things that like naturally have to be people driven and can't be offshored. Maybe we'll see technology improve those things. I don't know, Dave, if you've seen like GPT-4, I've heard from a few people who've kind of tried it out and they seem like, think it's a massive improvement. What do you see as like the short term, like next kind of six to 12 months improvements that are happening in AI? Yeah, as far as like, you probably have a view on it that other people don't. What do you think is happening and what will it change? We're working with pretty much any big model provider and kind of getting early-ish access to the models and seeing what's out there. And I don't fully know what all, you know, OpenAI calls GPT-4. I mean, it's not like a single thing. It's like on yeah, the yeah. spectrum. And so you know, we're testing a lot of them. I think 3.5 was a pretty big leap over GPT-3. I think 4 is, you know, kind of continuing on that spectrum. And so, I don't know, the models I've played around with, which I'm not just being coy, I don't actually know kind of, is this what they're called GPT-4 are better? But I think it's like overhyped on Twitter and thinking that, oh, it's just you click one button and you get, you know, a 4,000 page novel, just like that. It's not that. But I do think you're going to see better zero shot prompting where it can do a wider range of things out of the box. You'll see these models doing better with some more like abstract thinking, like poetry, rhyming, connecting the dots between two things, like write me a poem in the style of. Beyonce about this topic that, you know, it's just like kind of connecting these like random things I think that'll like do better at. I think you're going to see context windows 
expand dramatically where right now most of the models are limited to like two to four thousand tokens and so you just can't fit a lot of content in there either kind of in the input or the output which like really limits the kind of work that you can do or the kind of like context that it can hold so i think you're gonna see like those windows expand dramatically to where maybe you have a fifty thousand token context window or a hundred thousand or a million which just opens up a lot more possibilities. Like what would be the most interesting possibility from like a huge context window? Well, then you could click a button and generate 4,000 words, you know, in one. Now, would it, would it be good or not? Who knows? There'd probably be like a lot of drift. Yeah, yeah. But I think the big thing is you could store more company or personal context in that. And so if I, I say, hey, write a blog post about Mercury or, you know, about whatever, the importance of banking, I could send in five previous blog posts as examples mm. in that one prompt, and it would be able to feed off of those. I see. So it's like kind of like quicker fine tuning. Yeah, you have to fine tune for that right now, which is just like so much more work. Do you think, like I always find one thing that like makes the AIs like less human is they don't seem to like keep their own context. Like they don't have a life, obviously, but they also yeah. just like don't remember their previous things. Whereas a human's always like, okay, you know, this is my story. Like they don't have a story. I wonder if they can have yeah. like more of a story if they keep like a continuous context. And even you see that some with, I know there's some examples of, you know, when Bing chat came out, it, it kind of appeared like after five interactions back and forth, the like original context and maybe even like the original prompting like fell out of the context window and it would start mm -hmm. to kind of go off the rails because like it's a context problem. It just can't fit all of it. And so you've got to be selective and opinionated as a company. And again, like users don't understand this. And so it's, it's really challenging to figure out how to include the appropriate context in a way that does what the people want it to do without them really even having any idea how to do that. And it's not always clear cut that just, oh, just send in the last bits of what they were writing about. Sometimes, you know, for writing a blog post, you know, maybe you always want to send in the title and the description. And even if it's a really long blog post, the beginning of the blog post might not fit in the context when you've got to cut that off, but you still want to keep the title and the description in order to kind of keep it on track there. So there's just a lot of engineering that has to happen around this that would be nice to not have to do. Speaking of this idea of like the AI is becoming a little bit more human, I know there's this whole like fear factor driven by sci-fi about sentient AI, but do you think these language models should become a little bit more human in terms of like how they dealing with things like empathy or dealing with different types of soft touch, you know, like if it helps their humor to be a little bit more relevant and on point? Mm. Do you think that's one part of the evolution of these language models is to make them more human deliberately, even though, you know, they might have some, you know, and you could maybe cap the downside by some protection so that it doesn't have all the negative attributes of a human? Yeah, and no, I certainly think that could make them, you know, maybe a little bit more palatable or adoptable. I mean, they do a really great job at imitating those things. And some might say, well, humans are kind of imitating empathy, you know, a lot of times too. And I think for us, like, I always come back to, What's the job to be done? What's the ideal output or model or set of models to accomplish that? And so like for marketing, you know, empathy matters and mean human matters. And that's a really powerful way to write copy and to write blog posts and write stories. And so like in that regard, yeah, we've got to help our models be more human and more empathetic and more casual. But I think other use cases may not need that at all. And that would actually detract by making it more empathetic or more human-like. Do you worry about kind of AGI or AI alignment? Or do you think like that's overblown? I wouldn't say I worry about it. I can understand kind of both sides and kind of see a world where that is not a net positive for people. I'm an optimist. And so I'm kind of just like, let's go create and build and, you know, let's be thoughtful about these things as they come up. But I don't really worry about it. None of the futures where we get destroyed by, turned into paper clips, you know, by the paper clip making <laughs> machine. I could see a world where that could happen, but it seems like lower probability to me. But it's also extreme downside. So maybe even if it's incredibly low probability, it uh, needs to be taken very, very seriously. And I can see that for sure too. What do you think? I think actually like, 
the level of AI we have is really interesting and there's tons of applications from it, but I don't think it's anywhere near AGI and human level intelligence. Like, I just don't think we understand it well enough. Like, I think we're far away from it. So that's my first yeah. blocker. I think my second blocker is, I think the more intelligent something is, the more empathetic it is. And I mean, that's what's happened with humanity to most of the extent, right? Like, I think humans were like real assholes <laughs> like a thousand years ago. Like we had like rampant slavery and there's just a lot of bad things and uh, humans have improved. I think the smarter the societies have got. So there's no reason to think that a really smart AI would not also head in that direction. Yeah, there's this like window, you know, let's say it gets smarter and more powerful really fast. There's like a pretty small window in which it would like care to destroy us. But before it gets too smart and powerful where it's like, ah, it doesn't even bother me. A lot of these things that like people debate in technology and scientific circles are really actually like religious debates to some extent. Uh, yeah. You know, I grew up in like a religious household and one of the things my parents could not understand is like how someone non-religious can still be moral they were like oh if they don't have god to like guide their morality obviously they're all evil <laughs> right like that was like the mm -hmm. thing in reality actually people can be very moral and make good ethical decisions without this like kind of force forcing them to yep yeah I, I think there's also this point about the desire to like live and the desire to actually even destroy other entities so that you can live is very biological it's actually a defining characteristic of life all biological life is that all life wants to live but it, all of these llms are being trained on humans right so like wouldn't they have human tendencies they'll talk about human tendencies but i don't know if they'll have an innate human like i don't think an llm is going to become sentient i think you know we're talking about agi that's a different kettle of fish so is it going to be is an agi going to want to survive is it going to have that deep side i mean it could be programmed i guess to do that and probably you could program an ai to be disruptive a hostile country, you know, could maybe do that, right? Deliberately. Maybe that's the thing we should care more mm -hmm. about is like if someone's going to do it deliberately as a way to like hurt another country. What a positive note to end this on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have another five minutes. So. <laughs> Dave, I think one thing that I always try to learn about this stuff is like the AI field and applications of AI is changing so fast. Like where do you kind of go to you know, make sure you're on top of it. What sources have you found like the most kind of informative or communities you're in? I mean, certainly Twitter is kind of where I'll see breaking stuff and different demos and, and interesting things there. I'll interact some with like the research community and just kind of see like what's kind of out there further out, a little bit more nebulous, you know, a little bit not practical today. And for that, I'm usually just like texting a couple of different friends and kind of seeing what, you know, they're seeing there. I think it is important to have like a foundation, you know, again, I'm not an AI researcher, but I've taken a few courses and I've watched some YouTube videos just on kind of like understanding like the core concepts and like, you know, what's even kind of happening under the hood here. Like, I think that's really helpful, even if, you know, you're not going to be an AI expert. But yeah, honestly, Twitter is probably where I kind of see the most interesting and like up-to-date things. By the time you write a book about it, it's like not even relevant anymore, you know? So it's got to be a pretty quick to stay on top of things. Dave, was there anything else you wanted to cover today? Any other topics or something that you wanted to chat about that you were interested in? Or any questions you have for us? A lot of people ask me about kind of how to build products with this and what's made Jasper work when others haven't worked as well or whatever. And I think there's still so much opportunity today, even as it gets so crowded and competitive for people that are willing to start with the customer and work backwards. And instead of starting with the technology and like going and like working towards a customer there, and obviously like the technology sparks it. So it's going to kind of start there, but I don't see a lot of people like talking to enough customers and like developing a point of view or getting a unique insight. And in a world where kind of like a lot of it is becoming a commodity. It's IP. Like what you gather from talking to 30 customers is like your own IP. And what you build out of that is like a unique insight that you have on the world and you have on a specific segment. And so people will ask, well, you know, what can I build? And for me, the way I would approach if I was starting over new is I would pick a segment, pick a customer base. Let's say it's doctors. Let's say it's lawyers. 
And I would just start to like really talk to them and I would start to really understand their workflows and when, what do they use to do this thing? And then what do you use before that? What do you use after that? And just like going really deep there and then turning around and being like, okay, cool. Like, like I understand the pain points. I understand what they're saying that is so painful and takes up so much time and is so tedious. Like, is there something in generative AI that can solve this extremely well or something not in generative AI though. Again, I would probably recommend people are building generative AI. You were not just like talking to marketers. You were a marketer, right? Like you'd written a course about it. So like you had this like super duper deep insight. Yes. In my case, I was that and I had spent seven years yeah, yeah. fully engaged in that community. And so that's the other shortcut too. It's like, if you just are <laughs> yeah, the customer, spend seven years you know, it. it's like Easy you can shortcut. do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you, if you could solve your own problem, obviously that's where like so many great companies have like come from. But, um, you know, like there's just, this is going to be so prolific across so many different industries that I think it just starts with like talking to the customer and like working backwards from there. And I think there's real differentiation and power in that. It's not as sexy as like starting with the the model and you know working out, but it's far more powerful. So that's always my encouragement to people is like go talk to customers for a while and then go and look at the tech. And I think you'll come out with some really interesting solutions that it's very likely other people are not thinking about because they haven't gone and done the legwork there. Yeah. And you're more likely to be able to commercialize them because you're solving someone's actual problem. Yeah. So that's just what we always talk to our team about is just, hey, like we want to be customer obsessed. We're always starting with the customer working our way out as widespread as we all think all of this stuff is and GPT-3 and all that. Like most people in the world don't know, don't care, will never care what a GPT-4 is. And they've got pain points in their day that they're looking to have somebody solve in a delightful, easy, elegant way. And if you can go and do that, they will love you for a long, long time. They'll pay for it. And that's a repeatable model that a company can take to keep building great products. Yeah. What a great point to end this great podcast. Really appreciate you taking this time, Dave. Super interesting. Yeah, this was fantastic. Yeah, thanks, you guys.